everybody, welcome back to Vote Why the Podcast, and today we're talking about one of the iconic special effects studios, Industrial Lights and Magic. As always, I'm Kate, I'm here with Adrian. Hey, how's it going? And Matt. Hello. And today, I am not leading this episode. Adrian is. Yeah. Uh, so, there's really like not like a big anniversary or anything of why we're doing this episode, I've just been thinking a lot about how, like, basically, like, through the years of our podcast, even, like, our main episodes, our Patreon episodes, our review episodes, and even the watch parties that we've been having with the But Why Other community. If you haven't been to them, you need to come. They're really fun. Um, ILM has basically done almost all of the effects for all of those movies, so I thought it'd be kind of cool to kind of talk about that, especially with the strides that they've made with The Mandalorian recently. So kind of talking about their contributions to film and talk about some of our favorite visual effects because you know there's some good stuff and then there's some bad stuff when it comes to cg and visual effects so for my intro question just um it's kind of hard to be like hey what's your favorite ilm movie because there's a lot so we'll just go with what do you think is like the biggest or your favorite achievement in visual effects so far we'll go with matt first cool um one i had no idea what ilm was um, even though I pretty much have talked about it, I think, in two different occasions at this You've point. You've talked about them more than two times. <laughs> yeah, <I was> like, <laughs> like, way more than two times. <laughs> um, so, obviously, I don't even know what to say the biggest advancement. I was going to say Jurassic Park by default, just because it had dinosaurs, and I do pretty sure I knew I mentioned them in that episode. Definitely um, did. Yes, and I, so I was like, yeah. Um, I don't... I don't know. I am kind of looking at the list that you kind of wrote about on here, and I do recognize a lot of these movies, and I guess the only other one would definitely be, which obviously I'm probably going to talk about anyways when we got into some of these effects, would be the Mission Impossible films. And so we'll just go. Yeah, that was that's what I was, that's the one I was looking for, actually. <laughs> <laughs> what I was that was the only one he mentioned when we told what we were doing. I was like, this just gets me to be saying the Mission Impossible franchise is still better than like anything else we got. So including yeah, the is. CGI fest of MCU. Yeah, I, I thought it was going to be either a toss-up between Mission Impossible and Jurassic Park for you. So I'm <laughs> glad. It was both. Matt <laughs> has contributed. <laughs> Matt is done. Let's do this. Uh, what about you, Kate? <laughs> Baby Yoda. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not a surprise to anyone, but I have an actual educated answer on this after Baby Yoda. Uh, puppetry. The advancement of puppetry outside... So, initially, one of the things that really brought me into, like, falling in love with a lot of the more... Uh, with sci-fi in general and with kaiju movies, all that is suitimation. Putting somebody in a suit, having that suit move, and then shooting it and using those pieces, right? But the advancement from suitimation, in my opinion, is really puppetry and building very, very robust puppets and having them fit into a world where they don't feel out of place. Um, that also has to do with Matt's dinosaurs. Um, I, I think I don't really care for CG that much. Um, only because I think a good puppet can do so much more. Um, and at least on the sci-fi side, on the other, on the horror side, um, good good practical effects usage when it comes to injury um, and kills. There have been some amazing advancements there, specifically from the slasher genre, and I will always take buckets of fake blood over CGI put blood, uh, in my opinion. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it may not seem like an advancement because we just keep pushing everything to CG, but a good puppet is a very good advancement. And all I have to say is just in all honesty, Werner Herzog believed the child was real and treated him like a child. <laughs> <laughs> and that shows you the power of a puppet. Yeah. Yeah, I think for me, I mean, there's like lots of like really cool stuff that they've done. Um, I like CG because I like to see the, the way they put it. I think good CG ages well and bad CG ages really poorly. That's fair. Um, but I think when we talk about like the CG we have now, and we talked about it a little bit in our Terminator episode, but the T-1000 CG like really changes the game for everything we get after that because it doesn't age terribly compared to some of the other stuff that we get, like even with, you know, the the prequel trilogy. Yeah. There's some bad CG in there. It's all that... bad CG there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think I think that one's just really good in terms of like CG, but I think you're right. The practical effects are really great and they have a really, really big track record of doing really good practical effects and especially with the stuff that they've, the strides they made in the Mandalorian, 
of blending those two worlds really well. I think, you know, they've really set us up for some really cool stuff down the line. That's not just going to be all transformer CG, which just don't get me wrong. I love seeing big robots punch dinosaurs in the face, uh, in CG. I think it's super cool, but, um, the practical stuff is better. Oh, I lied. You know what my favorite advancement for them is? The giant spider in Wild Wild West. Oh, why? Why do we bring that movie? Yeah. That movie is terrible. <laughs> that movie is amazing. <laughs> Shut your mouth. Terrible. Just so we can just we're get gonna, on Matt. We're, we're, we're going to watch why. it this Friday. We're going to watch it for no, a movie night. No, we're not. Now. Let's yeah, do so, it. Um, I will be there 10 ways to Sunday. Yeah, so since we are talking way. about CG in general, I guess I should get my general CG premise out of here. Of Yeah. I treat CG like pizza, which means um, I don't really care. It doesn't really bother me, but I know bad CG when I see it, and I know good CG when I see it, and everything else in between, just whatever. Um, and for those, yeah. it's like pizza to me. Uh, a lot of people eat random pizzas from different places, but you know the good pizza, and you know the bad pizza. Yeah, and I will say, to Adrian, to your point, I think that that's probably a, an amazing answer in general and, and even just looking outside of ilm but just advancement in cg is cg and in, in small and very realistic things like a lot of people don't know the entirety of the basement in parasite of the basement house the street all of that all of that is cg like the street oh, looking really? out yes that's i didn't all know that. CG. the lawn with the house in the background that's all cg um so i think looking at those subtle pieces and making CG blend seamlessly is probably the best advancement because I don't like when I can tell that it is CG. It brings me out of it, which is why The Invisible Man, which is a phenomenal movie, didn't get a 10 out of 10 for me because the damn CG in it at the, in the last act frustrated the hell out of me. So like, yeah. I think that that where it kind of like softens the edges between CG and reality is probably the best advancement in special effects right now. Is that like when yeah. basically everybody found out that I think it was Mamma Mia was basically all CG background yes. and everybody was freaking out? Cause like, Oh my gosh, they were never anywhere. They just sat around and walked around on all these different, uh, green screens. Yes. Yeah. Parasite one blows my mind a little bit because I thought that was real for sure. I'll find, <laughs> I need to go back I'll and watch the movie again. I'll, I'll find the thing. Yeah. I need it. That's definitely one I'm sharing with people. Um, okay, so let's get into a little bit of the company history, and then we'll talk about some of these advancements that we've been kind of been talking about and kind of like when they've come and kind of why they are important. So Industrial Lights and Magic, or ILM as we've been calling it, is an American motion picture visual effects company that was founded in May of 1975. ILM has gone on to produce special effects for nearly 300 films, including the entire Star Saga, the and the Jones series, the Harry Potter series, the Jurassic Park series, Back to the Future trilogy, many of the Star Trek films, Ghostbusters 2, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the Pirates of the Caribbean, the Terminator sequels, the Transformers, the Men in Black series, the MCU, Wild Wild West, most of the Mission Impossible films, E.T., Batters Not Included, The Abyss, Flubber, and just a whole bunch of other ones that are just a crazy list. They've also provided like a little bit of work on the Avatar as well they weren't like the main ones but they did help out with that one and that's obviously like a huge huge visual effects movie but they also did work on the last airbender too which is not great for them because nope. if anyone has seen that movie so that bad. movie special effects is terrible bad um but they have it, done a lot of really great work and we'll get into it later but i have to gotta knock you out why, why did you do this why did you do it didn't even hold up at the time it made me want to walk out of the theater i've never wanted to walk out of a theater before and that one made me do it especially when the earthbenders bend that one rock and there's like five of them <laughs> come on um two times that and hellboy 2019 yeah that was really bad that movie is horrible i don't I think they did hellboy did they do hellboy i hope not i hope they didn't do hellboy. i hope not because that is by <laughs> they far they didn't probably... do hellboy okay thank you <laughs> Yeah, that movie lasted so, ten minutes for me, and I was like, "Kate, can we leave?" Kate's like, "We haven't even got our food yet." I'm like, "I don't want to be here." <laughs> That's me during the Avatar: the Last Airbender. If we didn't go see it with friends, we would have walked. I would have walked out for sure. It was my first midnight movie, guys. A guy in front of us shaved his head to paint an arrow on it for Ang. He was definitely more disappointed than me, and I was disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or mean... hold on, I'm sorry, Ang. Ang. Oh god. But I am. They also didn't do Dragon Ball Evolution, which I think I think has worse CG in my opinion. It's fair. Um, but you okay. know that's that's okay. Yeah. yeah. So. Rabbit, holy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
movies so, that they should have done that maybe would have made it better. Maybe, uh, yeah, I don't, know. I don't think they can no, say that, that movie. Might, no, no. <laughs> that's fair. So, ILM did start in 1975, and it is George Lucas's baby. You can say what you want about his prequels and all of his other stuff, but he started ILM back in the mid 70s. So, basically, Lucas wanted his 1977 Star Wars film to include visual effects that have never been seen before. After discovering the in-house effects department at 20th Century Fox was no longer operational, Lucas approached Douglas Trumbull, who is best known for his effects on 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is a fantastic movie, at least in my opinion. I don't know. I haven't watched it in years. I hope it's still good. But he was unavailable because he was already working on Close Encounters of a Third Kind, but he suggested his assistant um, to Lucas. Uh, Lucas would then bring in his assistant and he put together a small team of college students, artists, engineers, and basically set them up in a warehouse in California. Lucas would name the group Industrial Light and Magic, which would become basically the Star Wars Village Effects Department of Star Wars. Uh, obviously, after the success of The Empire Strikes Back and the other Star Wars movies, um, Lucas would become really interested in computer graphics on um, sequels and other movies he contracted he contacted triple i best known for their early computer effects in movies like westworld 1973 future world 1976 and tron 1982 and the last starfighter which ended up making a computer generated test of five x-wing fighters flying in formation which makes a lot of sense um i don't know if you guys have seen the last starfighter but the last starfighter mm-hmm. kind of effects in there kind of lends a lot to kind of what we see in um the x-wings however he found it to be too expensive and then returned to making handmade models but the test had shown him that it was possible to do some kind of cg so he basically decided to create his own computer graphics department and as a result they invested um in apple products and cgi computers or sgi computers one of Lucas's employees was given the task to find the right people to hire. And then after a short, short search, short shirt, short, short, wow. short, <laughs> short Are you okay? Jesus. Are you having a stroke? <laughs> I might be. After a short search, a new computer division of ILM was created in 1979. And this is where we start getting a lot more of the computer graphics. I mean, they still obviously have their, um, their, you know, practical effects but this is like their first of them doing their own computer graphics and everything in 1979 and then from here lucas would leverage his own context in the early 80s to use ilm to work on movies like raiders of the lost ark wrath of khan et the dark crystal and poltergeist which would basically establish them as a company to be able to do just kind of about any movie really and not just kind of sci-fi operas but hitting different kinds of veins with their movies um with their work um then basically like from there it just trickles down and they just do hundreds of movies and then of course in 2012 the walt disney company acquires ilm as a purchase of lucasfilm so we basically get ilm doing all of like the disney stuff after 2012 which basically basically gives them like half of every movie ever made yeah up to this point and that's really it like basically like george lucas wanted his own you know effects company to do star wars with and it just turned out to be so good and he leveraged his stuff with like Spielberg and things. It got into those movies and it just kind of trickled down. And now it's one of the biggest special effects companies. I think if you're looking at special effects companies, you have like Pixar, like Disney's other part of their thing. And that's kind of like it. And Sony, so, yeah. of course. So I will say it is interesting, by the way, because we talk about George Lucas the whole time and pretty much nobody brings this up about him. Yeah, like it's, yeah. I mean, there's lots, I mean, there's lots of things to say about him, but I don't think he gets nearly enough credit for just going out there and seeing all this other stuff and being like, ah, it's too expensive. Let me do it my way and put together this team and cascade this whole thing. I don't know, like, what kind of, like, rights and stuff he has. I don't know what the licensing rights are for them here, but if he has, you know, even like a fraction of a percentage of ILM still, dude is sitting real pretty. Because 1% of a billion is a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. A little bit, a little bit. <laughs> so that's really all I got. So we're going to move into this one, but why those? So we can start talking a little bit more about um, kind of what they've done to be successful and then get into some of like their innovations. Um, 
So, of course, they're a successful company with over 300 movies and a handful of successful television shows. ILM is a pretty big deal. I think that really goes without saying, but I think that I'm more surprised with is, like, how much they are able... Like, from when they started, basically, they are connected to even movies that they're not even a part of anymore because, basically, lots of people got their start with ILM in the effects industry. So... If you look at like their monetary success, they're literally a part of some of the biggest movie franchises, the MCU, Star Wars, Harry Potter, Jurassic Park. So if you look at like the top 10 grossing movies of all time, like they have 10 or they are they have 8 of the 10 with the exception of Furious 7 and Frozen 2. Like they even had work yeah. on Titanic, so they have like literally all of those movies under their belt yeah. when it comes to making money. And like and I do want to like point out too, like not that I I, I don't hate hate cgi i just hate over reliance on cgi i think yeah. that it removes a lot of the specialties and stunt work i think that it removes a lot of the craft that i really admire from and, and ilm specifically right like i when i one of the reasons i first came into star wars as a fan was because i thought those aliens were real like i thought it was all real like the prosthetic work the puppetry all of that and it's also one of the reasons why i really love uh, the Force Awakens and Rise of the, uh, Rise of Skywalker because those two movies feel a lot more practical in their usage than the Last Jedi, and Which, it's also why I love Rogue One. Like, there's an an authenticity to walking into something and knowing that you can walk into that ship. There's an authenticity to knowing that you're interacting with something that is physically there um, that I really really appreciate. So like, not to knock any of their really cool CG because I think like. The Iron Man CG, which I guess is pre-ILM, but like the if you could check that, but yeah, like, I mean they they still did they still were they, they still, still worked did on that. that. Yeah. They did, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the Iron Man CG is phenomenal. It holds up twelve years later, and it's great. But I think that like I don't know, Black Panther CG wasn't that great. <laughs> no, uh, it's kind so of like, like I was like kind of to your point of too of like how I say it's pizza of like. They literally CGI'd a cornfield and a mustache in Justice League. Yes. Like, what? You couldn't find a cornfield anywhere in America or yeah. the world to walk have somebody walk in that you had to CGI a cornfield? Like, why? Yeah. It's, it's like, when is it necessary? When isn't it? And yeah. I And I think it's also just because I do admire all of the practical work that ILM has done and continues to do that it makes it a little bit harder for me. Tom Cruise sure. was flying helicopters, and they had to CGI a cornfield. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, not I wrong. can't. I can't say anything. I, I just, I just keep thinking about the rhinos and Black Panther because I love that movie. But that rhinos are those rhinos are bad. Actually, you know, the rhinos don't bother me as much as the final fight on the tram with Killmonger and T'Challa. That so, bothers me more. Or when it pans up not, the, the mountain yeah, thing, and he was like, oh, that's just, is this, is this episode one of Star Wars? Well, so <laughs> I, like, I like the mountain one. I, so I think my thing is, is when I see human bodies doing fight choreography that should have and could have been uh, the actual people doing it themselves, yeah. that's what bothers me because they look like Play-Doh. It also bothers me in Spider-Man Far From Home because a lot of it is really cool, and some of it he looks like Play-Doh. And I don't like that. It, so I'm with um, Kate on the whole. Me. The fight scene probably bothers me more than the rhinos. Yeah. I mean, they could have just they could have just trained a rhino. So I <laughs> all I've learned is they could have trained animals. <laughs> Not wrong. If you want to hear about training wild animals to do things? Go check out our Jaws episode. <laughs> um. So that's what happens in Jaws, the third one, with all the CGI sharks going ah. <laughs> So I think like their monetary success, regardless of like their bad movies, really speak for themselves. Because like they, I mean, you say like box office stuff, but like they still did Titanic. So like they made they made a lot of money. Yeah. They make a lot of money. But again, what I find more fascinating is like they basically have their hands in so many franchises, basically directly and even more like indirectly. So if you look at kind of their Oscar nominations, they have um, sixteen best visual effects Oscar wins and lots of nominations. Honestly, I was trying to count them, and it's kind of like hard to find because they're basically nominated 
I think like over 40 times, but it's kind of hard because they've been nominated like multiple times for different movies every year. So the first time it happens is in 1980 when both Raiders of the Lost Ark and Dragon Slayer were both nominated, but they were also like the only two films nominated that year. Then the next year in 1981, when E.T. and Poster were nominated alongside Blade Runner, like that's two of like they basically like did all of those movies. So it's kind of hard to talk about their Oscar wins. And this basically continues on and on and on. So basically, even last year in 2019, ILM worked on three out of the five movies nominated for Best Visual Effects, Endgame, The Irishman, and Rise of Skywalker against 1917 and Lion King. So Lion King does not deserve to be in there. And they can shoot. That was terrible. I saw Taxidermy. It was scary. Because there was no life behind their eyes. That was why. That was taxidermy. It could could have been beautiful animation, but there was no life behind their eyes. It was actually terrifying. But also, I saw some of the stuff from 1917, and that looked amazing. Well, 1917 did win that year. Yeah, I was like, 1917 Um, versus The Lion King should be ashamed that even The Lion King's even spoken in the same sentence. Well, the stuff they do in The Lion King informs on what they do in Mandalorian, so that's probably why Lion King got nominated, because they did do some, like, basically, like, the groundwork. And we'll, we'll talk about we'll talk about when we get the Mandalorian, but I, I agree. Did you like, see the taxidermy animals? Man, I'm just giving you the information, man. I'm not saying... <laughs> I, do I look like a Oscar nominee person guy? No, because you're not right. white or old. <laughs> this is true. Fair, fair. Not right. Not old, not white. That's... I've seen these movies, the actually, so, like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, you actually watched the movie, too. Uh, so again, they're nominated for three out of the five last year. I, Nineteen Seventeen goes on to win, rightfully so. But even in years where their team doesn't outright win, the members of the team that did win, more often than not, even going back to like the nineties and and after, got their start at ILM. And this is true for nine for uh, twenty nineteen. So Nineteen Seventeen won the award, but I'm not gonna I'm gonna butcher this guy's name. Uh, Kate, help pronunciation. Is it? Is he French? I think he is French. I believe. If it's French, I yeah, I suck at. Okay, well, let's go with the the main guy who worked on 1917. I think it's Guillaume. 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 Rocheron. Yeah, Guillaume. Guillaume. Guillaume Rocheron worked with ILM on Harry Potter and the Chronicles of Narnia, and. Greg Butler, who was also a part of that team, worked on The Mask and Starship Troopers. Um, even though Lion King obviously didn't win either, Lion King's first build nominee, Robert Letgau, who we've talked about on the podcast before because he was on the team with Titanic and was the visual effects supervisor for Star Trek The Next Generation. So basically everybody in that category has connections to ILM at their start or now, which is yeah. pretty cool. Especially since none of those guys are, like, working for major effects companies. They're basically just, like, contracted to go help. So they're basically, like, their own people going out to do those things. Yeah. That's really cool because it kind of, like, see it as, like, the thing that launched a whole bunch of, I would assume, smaller companies after they do their stuff with ILM. And Yeah. That's, yeah. Basically, um, basically what happens there. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're looking at other major effects companies, you're probably thinking of, like, Pixar uh, which makes the most sense because they basically are like the kings of animation um, up there with Disney. Uh, Pixar actually, too, originated out of the graphics department, uh, computer graphics department established at ILM. And we've talked about this in our Pixar episode. Yeah. But in the late 1970s, when they started that first uh, computer graphics um, section, they called it Graphic Group. And then they would basically end up selling that to Steve Jobs, who Lucas would end up buying equipment from later on. So basically... Um, even Pixar, who is like a juggernaut in animation, also gets a start directly yeah. from ILM. God, so they, they literally formed everything. Yeah, they they did everything. Even if they're not winning stuff, because they haven't really won something kind of like in a while. Um, they're more, you know, getting awards at the Oscars now for kind of their innovations, which we'll get into next. But they basically still have that connection to being like, hey, I did that thing. Or, like, that's my kid. But they're basically, like, watching, like, their kids go out there and score home runs, basically. Yeah. So, um, so kind of moving in from there, again, they're not maybe not winning a whole bunch of awards for, like, the best effects 
in the Oscars, but they are winning lots of technical awards. So ILM has 29 technical awards from the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, which is given to honor the men and women and companies whose discoveries and innovations have contributed in a significant and lasting way to motion pictures. So we can run through like a couple of these kind of like their biggest innovations and feel free to stop and talk. We can stop me. We can talk about them as we go through. But um, again, like going back to even 1975 when they first started, they resurrected the use of this division, the first use of motion control cameras on Star Wars um, A New Hope. In 1980, the first use of Go Motion to animate the Tauntaun creatures for The Empire Strikes Back. Um, oh, those poor Tauntauns. In 1982, the first in house completely generated com- uh, compute- computer generated sequence. For the Genesis sequence in Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan, previously computer graphics in Star Wars, and uh, their their other projects were done outside of ILM, so that was their first one there. In 1985, the first completely computer-generated character, the Stained Glass Man in Young Sherlock Holmes, which I went to go look at. Real weird. We've come a long way from, from that picture. In 1988, the first morphing sequence in Willow. In 1987, Photoshop was first used at ILM as an image processing program, as its creators were employees of ILM. So basically, we get Photoshop also because of ILM. In 1989, the first digital uh, compositing of a full screen live action image during the final sequence of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. In 1989, the first computer 3D character to show emotion, the pseudopod in The Abyss. Which is a great ni- movie, by the way. Also great movie, yeah, definitely. Uh, paves the way for them being like, let's uh, do more crazy stuff with animals in movies. In 1991, the first dimensional matte painting where a traditional matte painting was mapped onto 3D geometry, allowing for camera Parallax in Hook. Um, I remember that as well. Also, in 1991, the first computer, ra- uh, first partially computer-generated main character, the T-1000 in Terminator 2. And we kind of talked about like how they do that in the Judgment in Judgment Day, which is really really cool in our Terminator episode. 1992, the first texture of human skin was computer-generated in The Death Becomes Her. Never heard of that movie. What? Death Be? Okay, okay, hold on. So this actually makes me is my, very no, excited. Is, 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 this, is this my turn? Is this your turn to yell at me? That's so this, as well, you know, it's fine that you've never heard of it because it's it is a horror like classic that is just it's it's a staple from the eighties. It was the best body usage, like body horror piece used for like. Hold on, what do you um, mean by the staple comedy. in the eighties? So like, wasn't it? Oh no, it was a nineties film. That's right. I was like, this is nineteen ninety two. Where did we get the eighties? <laughs> well, it's early nineties. So essentially, the entire aesthetic of Death Be- becomes her informs pretty much all the Adams Family stuff that we get after it, and a mm. lot of the other horror comedy stuff that comes after it as well. Because the body horror established in Death Becomes Her travels over into all the stuff we see in late nineties horror comedies. So like, yeah, it's also one of my favorite films. It's amazing, and the special effects in that film are like it. it it's it still holds up because it really it it blends the CG with the practical so freaking well. Like Meryl Streep's head is completely twisted. I'm I'm going to get you a picture. So, so yeah, I'm looking at the picture. So, oh, I do want to say something though. Okay. So, Kate, you said this was a what? Classic? Yeah. Classic, okay. Why? What year is this? Does that make you a classic? 1992. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, no, essentially it, I guess a cult classic is a, be- a better word. So, like cult classics have they a mass of very, very large following. I, I, I know what you're stuff. talking about. It was referring, because you refer, first thing you say is a classic, and I'm like, this film is like Kate years old. It's Kate. one year younger than Kate, but yes. I know, that's what I'm saying. No. So I hope it, you... it, That's fine. I'm fine with being a classic. I don't care. If I, if I can say that I am a classic in the same way Death Becomes Her is, I will be freaking happy, because Death Becomes Her is phenomenal, and I think everybody should watch it, because it is just funny. Like it is like the humor is it in it is so freaking good and Meryl Streep like okay I actually think that if you two watched it you would think that it was good and I like Meryl Streep so I know both of y'all's characters but I think you would watch it and think it was good it's hilarious oh you didn't 
Oh, okay. Okay. I'm seeing I'm seeing it. All right. What? Okay. I didn't know Bruce Willis was in this. I like Bruce. Yeah. I like Bruce Willis. Um, I know the movie she's referring to. I've never seen it, but I do know the movie she's referring to. It's so good. I watch it every year. And, like, I think the coolest part is there's a scene with, I forget, I forget the other person's name, which is probably really bad because she's also a very big person. Goldie Hawn. Uh, Goldie Hawn is the other person. And there's a very, uh, one of the most iconic scenes from the film is where she has a hole in her stomach and they put their hand through it. And it is such a simple use of special effects that works so well. Ah, I just love it. Okay, I'm done. Well, ILM was there. Um, I'm just excited. I didn't also, know this. Yeah. Also, fun fact, ILM also, now on the topic of Bruce Willis, they also did Die Hard. And we talked about Die Hard, and they had a bunch of cool special effects, like where they were like blowing up buildings and helicopters and stuff. They did that one, too. Uh, so 1993, which is me years old, is the first time digital technology used to create an, a complete detailed living creature, so the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park which earned ILM its 13th Oscar. Rawr. We talk about that a whole bunch in our Jurassic Park episode where Matt talks about dinosaurs for like... You know what I also realized? That Jurassic Park episode is almost 100 episodes ago. Uh, It's a a classic. (laughs) Yeah. In 1994, the first extensive use of digital manipulation of historical and stock footage to integrate characters in Forrest Gump. So coming back in Forrest Gump, they do that that big yep. time reel, and they kind of put it in there pretty good. Like it's pretty, it's pretty done, so, done pretty well. And I so, didn't realize that that was like the first time that that's ever they've ever done that. So um, the funny in, thing about Forrest Gump was way. I watched Forrest Gump when I was a kid, and I was like, oh yeah, movie cool, whatever, blah blah. And it wasn't until I was probably a junior in high school when we showed it in our history class to realize that everything <laughs> was actually in there was a reason and part of history. I'm like, oh, I didn't know any of this when I was a kid. I was like, oh yeah, it's just like a movie, but no, like they actually took the footage and. <laughs> The room in there. Um, so 1995, the first fully synthetic speaking computer generated character with a distinct personality and emotion um, to take a leading role in Casper. Casper used to be one of my favorite movies. I like and I, I love Casper. I don't. I hate the sequels and, and whatever really, yeah. they did with it, but the first one is really good. Yeah, the first Casper is fantastic. Casper I love Casper. Casper Ricci. It is also one of my Halloween have to watches. I watch a lot of movies in October. I love it. <laughs> Don't watch the sequels or whatever they did after that. Nobody's no, talking I, I, about that, Matt. You bring up stuff that is bad it. that nobody is talking about. Don't bring down the mood. <laughs> they in, also, in 1995, they did. They have the first computer-generated computer photorealistic hair and fur that they basically use for the lion and monkeys in Jumanji. That was good. That was good. Jumanji also still holds up. Yes, Jumanji still holds <laughs> up, for sure. And um, so, did so, they trick Go ahead. I was going to say, and as much as I do like the first one holds up, the other ones that they have brought back are really good. It's just weird when you throw them all together and it's supposed to be Jumanji. <laughs> and it still kind of bugs me. But isn't they all so good? They are. Like you said, said. They, they are great. I actually really like the ones with the Kevin Hart, The Rock, and everything. I we, think they're really good. The, but then when you put the them press. all three together, you're like, I don't like this. I need we, to watch like all back to back. I think that's a, that'd be a fun watch party. We got the press screening to the most recent Jumanji, and I accident. I think I said it for like a, a one of the writers' meetings, and Matt was like, "We're moving the writers' meetings. I want to go see this movie." Because <laughs> I did. I actually uh, like the first one, and then I like the second one, and I actually do like the original one. But once again, I should just name something else in Jumanji. I'm sorry. Yeah. So. <laughs> The following year, we get the firstly compute the first completely computer generated main character in Dragonheart um, I with that Draco. <laughs> I love Dragonheart as a kid. It I love Dragonheart. That awful. CG still holds up. I don't care. He looks real good. <laughs> he, that dragon. I, I haven't watched the movie in years, but in my head, that's like a like that. He that dragon walked so Khaleesi's dragons could fly. And burn people alive. So yeah, this is going to be good. like a old PlayStation thing for you, where you're like, I remember the graphics; they were amazing until you go look at them. No, no, just don't. No, <laughs> have I'm you good. gone? Have you gone back to go look at them? Uh, I watched it on like AMC like ten years ago. <laughs> that's, that's that's about Once it. Once again, this is going to be like the old uh, looking at video games from the '90s and early 2000s. I I will not put it in there the puppet dragon is beautiful though also i mean it's still the first fully main <laughs> that's, character that's computer fair, generated that's so, fair. You know. that's fair. 
because then we also get in 1999 the first computer generated character to have a full human anatomy in Emotep in the Mummy. So, which is still a great movie and still that is film. a classic. <laughs> 2006, a little bit uh, later. So basically, like they just like run the 90s with really cool innovations, and then it takes a little bit for something else to happen. But in 2006, develops iMocap system, which uses computer vision techniques to track live action performers on set used in the creation of Davy Jones and the ship's crew in the film The Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Man's Chest, which, by which the way, gives us so much stuff after that, like, so much. Which, by the way, um, I still love those first three movies, and I still love that franchise, and I still hate what they've done with it, and I do not care what they're doing with these other ones, and I wish they would just Aren't kill Aren't they it. on, like, nine now? No, they're, like, yeah, on five and six with the spinoff looking crap. I don't know. The first three are great. And then they said, we need to make money because we're Disney and that's all we ever do these days. And I hate the last, like, four. People were, people were talking about it on Twitter. They're like, this is actually a perfect trilogy. No, the trilogy is great. I, it was one of my favorite trilogies and probably one of my favorite, like, franchises until they decided we're going to run it to the ground. So, to, to kind of talk on this point with uh, specifically Davy Jones and all his crew is one of the things that I really like about ILM specifically is and this is just from a personal a uh, personal standpoint is they've built so much trust with me as a practical effects like house that when I saw and like when I go back and I look at like Davy Jones and I look at a lot of the Pirates of the Caribbean they've done such a good job of blending that physical practical in with the CG that I don't notice that there's any split difference between the two and that that like I guess that it's something that I didn't really pay attention to because my immediate reaction is bad pizza uh, when I think of, like, some CG coming in because I just have, like, this really, like, idealized view of practical effects. But you bringing up Davy Jones specifically, that, it's beautiful. Like, it's so well done. Yeah, I'm it's sad. done done really well. Um, and I was, like, looking at, like, some behind, like, the scenes footage stuff. Like, obviously, like, when they're filming it, it just looks absolutely ridiculous <laughs> with these dudes and, like, gray suits and stuff, like, with their faces painted. But it just comes across so well in film. And it's really one of the big reasons why I love the first three movies. And I don't remember what happened, like, in the last two. I think I attempted to watch the fourth one, didn't care, and I'm pretty sure there's a fifth one. And I was like, this doesn't exist in my head. And we're good. Yeah. So, again, fast forward a little bit from there. In 2014, they created the facial, or they got the award for creating the facial performance uh, capture solving system, which enables um, high-fidelity face performance transfer from actors to digital characters in large-scale productions, which they essentially use for Tarkin and Rogue One, um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and in Warcraft. I think, like, the biggest one here is definitely what they did with Tarkin. Um, I was like, we're talking about the frogs? No, we're talking about the scary deep fake technology. The yeah, frogs. basically that. <laughs> basically the deep fake technology that we get because of that. Um, yeah. And like their next big one is like what we'll talk about next and kind of like as we wrap up with what they've kind of been working on with the Mandalorian. But is there anything else y'all want to talk about there? I mean, I actually really like what the Tarkin thing. I thought it was done pretty No, pretty it well. was done. It was done phenomenally. It, it was amazing. My thing is the Pandora's box that got opened yeah, exactly. with the Tarkin thing. Like, the ethics behind it is probably yeah. a Well, a according to Collider, it is perfectly okay. <laughs> anyway. Um, but no, the, the, the delivery of Tarkin was beautiful. It, it, was, it was executed extremely well and seamlessly. And I actually think even better than the de-aging of, uh, not de-aging, but the, the Carrie Fisher at the end. I thought the Tarkin was actually even better than yeah, the I at thought, the end. I agree. I agree for sure. And like Warcraft, like Modern Night have been a great movie, but the visual effects in that and like what oh, they did with like the actors yeah, to make them works good. and stuff was ridiculously good. Yeah. Like the, they had more emotion than the human actors in that movie. Um, because of I how would, well that technology was done. I would also like to know how many times Andy Serkis has worked with ILM. A lot. A <laughs> lot. Because he did. Like, uh, like, I don't even know. I, I Maybe his, almost his entire career, I think. If you're, like, you're looking at like the, the movies he's done. Um, I have like, the filmography like, link in our show notes, but it, he's done a lot with them for sure. So for kind of our last but why, though, I think one of the best things for them, too, like they've done all this stuff, right? I think it's like very easy for them to be like, all right, we've done everything. 
y'all go figure out the next big thing. But they're still continuing to push boundaries with effects and doing that kind of blending of practical and the CG that we talked about kind of at the beginning. And this is like really shown in the production of The Mandalorian. Um, so they basically um, upped the ante of kind of like what they've been doing with like LCD screens and things like, or LED screens um, when it comes to kind of projecting backgrounds. And they created like the volume, which is a wraparound screen that takes over a scene, giving background and life to any set. So it's formally called the stagecraft, but it is essentially a 20 foot tall, 270 degree, 270 degrees around and 75 feet across, making it the largest and most sophisticated visual filmmaking environment that's been made. And I have some pictures. If you're not familiar with what the volume looks like, um, I have some pictures in our show notes here, but it's basically just a giant screen that projects like beautiful picture um, for them to see. So what this essentially does is eliminates the use of like a green screen and even blue screen. Cause when blue screen came out, like especially when you're looking at like jungle book, which is an extensive use of blue screen, we take that kind of out because green screen and even blue screen are pretty static when it comes to kind of what you can do with yeah. it. Um, but the volume is definitely not static. So the background is set with enormous led screens that you might see on stage at a conference or concerts. Um, but the volume is bigger than that. And what it does is basically allows the projection to be projected there. But the cooler thing and why, like, even though The Lion King might have been a weird movie, it did give them the ability to kind of test out this kind of technology of basically the background moves with the camera. So yeah. even if the actor can't maybe see, like, kind of what's going on behind him, as the camera pans around the volume on the actor, the background changes as well. So you're not having to like stop and redo CG or like redo a scene. You can just do it kind of all at once with yeah. this here. So I didn't know that a lot of the scenes in The Mandalorian were like almost completely done with the volume. I thought they were going super practical like they did before um, with that, but they blend that in really well. And a lot of that comes from being able to kind of pan around like that. Yeah, I, before I watched the the Mandalorian gallery episodes on it, it was one of those things where I was like, oh, I just assumed this was all practical because of their history and because it's executed so well. Yeah, so like, you know, they do blend that practical stuff there. So they do have like, you know, Mando is in his ship, but behind him it's basically the the volume behind him, you know, projecting out kind of like the space stuff there, or when he's talking to the the Jawas at the sand crawler, like it's partly a sand crawler and the rest of that behind him is CG. So with done with the volume. There's obvious benefits of this. Um and they talk a little bit like Kate said in the documentary series on Disney Plus, which I definitely recommend going to watch because it's really, really fantastic. So basically what they kind of talk about is the first seeing like what you're actually looking at instead of looking at a green screen or blue screen, allowing the actors to be a little bit more immersed in the scenes. Um, two, when it comes to shooting scenes, you don't have to worry about catching the light or waiting until nighttime uh, to make those scenes work because you just get it done instantly. You have really good control over how the light's reflecting off the materials because when you're doing green screen and things like that, it's kind of hard. They were they were talking about um, shooting on Mando. Like if they were to do this rant, like how stuff has been done before, it'd be hard to shoot things off of, or it'd be hard to light Mando's armor because it's so shiny and bright, especially kind of later on in the season. So yeah. it's without this technology, we wouldn't probably get such kind of deep and close scenes because we'd be able to see things reflecting off that surface. Um. Three, you can more accurately blend in practical environments with CG instead of all just being green screen. So, for example, when Mando's ship is docked, they have the ship there practically, but the rest of that stuff behind it is the the volume. Yeah. Um, the canyon scene with Mando and Baby Yoda, basically lots of practical ground, but the rest of that is CG. And That's again, cool. Mando with the Jawas as well. Uh, mixing that practical and CG in a way that, like, when I was asked if 
I knew how they shot it. I was like, yeah, they just did that outside like they did back in 1970. And like, uh, no, you're wrong. (laughs) And then, of course, just making reshoots easier. So if you have to go back and reshoot a scene for whatever reason, which happens obviously all the time now in this day and age of movie making, you can just walk back into the volume and do it. You don't have to like wait for the right light or the right scenery or the right weather. You can just go do the scene. Yeah. Um, and this obviously like isn't the first time that they've used LED screens like this, but this is the first time where they basically put it on this scale where it is huge. And this obviously like being a new thing comes with its own setbacks. So at you know over 20 feet tall, the volume is so large, um, but you can't really get super wide wide shots despite it being so big because if you got a super wide shot, you would obviously get the top of the volume and then you'd have to like deal with the CG part of that. So you have to like film at like very specific um, lens lengths to be able to get what you want to get out of it. Um, you also, the size of the LEDs. So like with any LED screen, there are pixels in them, obviously, right? So you can't even get super close because if you did, then you would end up getting those line stripes that you see on screens because you'd be able to actually see the pixels despite like how powerful the computer, despite how powerful the computers are, LED screens are still going to get pixels even if you get in really, really close. And three, just like limited on-site shooting to get like real shots, which can be, I guess, you personal preference there. Like if you want like real on-screen shooting, but I think they do it so well here that I don't think that really matters too much anymore. And then four, obviously it's going to be expensive, right? It's Disney, it's Disney and ILM doing this. So they can obviously do this, but not everyone's going to have access to this technology. Maybe like ever, I don't know what kind of patents they have on this kind of stuff, but obviously like this is a big project. So who knows if this is just going to be like Disney's doing these kind of things or if, you know, Sony will be able to make movies like this later on down the line yeah no i think i think it's really cool too because like as the technology becomes more available like it's just gonna up everything right because like that's how they're like when you're the first at something and you have access then your movies look your movies your tv whatever you're doing looks worlds ahead and then as it gets into like the major stream and all that stuff and you see the caliber rise with it and then it, it breeds this competitiveness as well so i'm really excited i think just like hearing like the talk like Having you talk about the the Mandalorian stuff and having you know seen how, it, how it's done, there's I'm not as averse to CG. I think now that there are better ways to do it that make that won't stick out. <laughs> so yeah, I obviously, look, like I know Matt, like you haven't seen the Mandalorian yet, right? Right, correct. Um, that's why I added in some pictures so you can kind of see kind of like how it looks. So. Do you have any thoughts on like yeah, that I, kind of technology? I just have a or... question. Um, obviously, we talked about how we got Photoshop, and we talked about the other side of we got deepfakes. Um, what exactly can we get out of this technology outside of just movies? Because I mean, movies are great, TV shows are great, or whatever. But what am I getting out of this in real world implications of reality? Um, I know that for, s- I guess it's not like really real world applications, but they do use like extensive like VR to get a lot of these shots and things like that. So I think this has like major implications on making VR more realistic and accessible. Yeah. I'm just wondering, like I said, what, like... what the technology opens up to possibly getting in general. Like I said, obviously VR is one of them, but I didn't know if there's anything else of weird, like outside of this. Cause obviously, like I said, we clearly some of these innovations over have allowed us to do way more beyond than just like the movies and TV shows we got. And so I was wondering like what all this stuff might actually open up and anything else. Like if there's anything, technology of using like how this looks i don't even know yeah i mean i'm not super sure kind of off the top of my head because it is just like a big you know 30 foot thing in a studio yeah. somewhere yeah. so i don't I'm know like, right, it's right. literally built for tv and movies so <laughs> yeah, like it's built for tv movies i mean do? it would make rides more exciting i don't know like if i can go in there and like do some vr stuff or do something in that room like as like a jedi or like a mandalorian or like Literally, I guess anything. I think that'd be kind of cool. Because imagine, like, you're doing, like, a dinosaur. And, like, there's a dinosaur, like, right there. I think that's yeah. much cooler just... than a green screen dinosaur coming at me and being yeah. like, <gasps> they're so beautiful. Yeah, it, it still just sits in the land of entertainment. Do, do you have, they, do you have ideas? Can, do you, they, you want to pitch some fake, ideas, Matt? Well, obviously. Well, second moon landing. Well, obviously with VR and stuff and looks like the, I guess, depending on what we go with VR and immersion and everything as you talk about, like, 
I mean, one of the big things we mentioned even before on this podcast is basically, like, health benefits of people using VR, whether it be, like, in therapy or any type of type of stuff of VR. And so I'm wondering, you know, because you're setting in and how, how immersive this could possibly be with the VR of what you could do. Yeah, so, like, when, when I was looking room. at this and, I, and what I... Yeah, so, like, I, I think, like, when I'm thinking of this and when you bring up therapy, I think I instantly kind of go to the Tony Stark scene, like, where he's basically projects that memory when he's at MIT. I mean, this is kind of like that a little bit, sort of, kind of. I think it's the closest thing that we can kind of get, especially when you think when you add in like that VR stuff where you can kind of make a more realistic environment to talk about that kind of stuff. Yeah, because obviously if you can recreate any of this type of stuff and recreate actual rooms or even a memory per se of like that, that just yeah. opens doors of a lot more things. So you're thinking about Tony Stark's technology in the start of Civil War? Yeah. Because that's actually where my mind went with the gif that has the little thing moving with the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm like, looking at this, of like obviously with movies and everything, but like what we can get, because even if you can just get memories and... You can actually translate from brain to memory to projecting an actual memory in a room or something as in the Tony Stark stuff. You're getting a lot of information depending on what you're even looking for, whether it be even therapy, crime. Uh, Listen here, knowledge. John Favreau. Stop using this to make <laughs> movies, all right? We need this for therapy. Health. I mean, we want to be Tony Stark, damn it. I mean, no, I, I think it's really good. I mean, it makes a lot of, of sense. Any I think it's can... anything. Well, it's, yeah, so like training yeah. would be really good. But I also think like bringing that into a therapeutic aspect, I mean, therapies are already wildly unaffordable. But if we lived in a system that actually took care of your health, um, something like this could actually be done for people to go through exposure therapy in a controlled manner. Because a lot of the times when people have PTSD or are processing trauma, a lot of the exposure therapy that they have to go do is control when it's controlled with the psychiatrist or the psychologist it's always in very very small pieces so then when they go home to go do it and i speak this somebody has gone through it it, it it you lose that that safe space but you have to go into the world to do it and you you lose the the safety net a little bit um and it and it takes a longer time to ramp up and actually see the effects of exposure therapy and everything like that so that could actually be really helpful for people who are dealing with processing those types of traumas. Yeah, walking through a memory versus putting on a headset to try to do something is a little different. At least some... Yeah. Maybe six. I, I feel like we're still very far away from... I'm not saying... Well, I mean, like I said, I'm not saying we but... are close, but I'm just wondering if there's anything that's been working on abusing any of this. I mean, this is this is pretty close, though, right? Because, like, even in that scene, like, when the thing goes down, he still has, like, a practical, like piano thing there yeah. i mean and if you look at some of these pictures that's kind of like what's being done here like you have yeah. some practical objects and then like the rest of it's kind of informed off of like those objects so i mean it's probably the closest we've gotten so far probably yeah, yeah. because obviously it's a different between seeing your virtual hands versus you actually see your hands of what you're doing yeah yeah we're about to get down a very deep rabbit hole uh but if it does Collider happen says it's okay, you know who Adrian. we have to thank for it ILM. Yeah. <laughs> and that's really all I got. Like, I don't have any fun facts because basically this whole episode is fun facts because I like, guess what ILM did. Um, and I think, like, the only really fun fact that I had that I think is really cool um, is the Pixar thing because I think it's crazy that, like, Pixar stems from this thing. So it's like hitting home runs. I'm so proud of you. Watching your kid. This is what we call growth. <laughs> uh, final thoughts before we get out of here? I just love ILM, and I know that, like, the puppetry was done by, like, uh, different people and stuff in The Mandalorian, but, like, I just think the the use of being able to take something that is real and create a world around it and still have that translate without, like, any doubt. Like, the suspension of disbelief in The Mandalorian isn't that hard because I'm going in and these things look very real. Um, overall, I think the fact that so many of my favorite films come from ILM is, is one of the, is really just a testament to their strength. Um, and yeah, I don't know. They're cool, man. I like them. <laughs> Matt? Um, no, kind of like Kate said, obviously, except CGI doesn't bother me unless it's very bad or, you know, it sticks out really good. Um, personally, I do like the practical effects and more kind of the surrealism. So kind of this blending of what we're getting now, I think helps and will probably help in general because 
man, if you've seen some bad CG, it's just, it's just bad. And it can ruin a whole thing for you. Like, it really can. Like, we brought up all these bad examples, but there's a reason because regardless of whatever else happens in the film, you remember that cornfield or those rhinos. Um, the or Invisible Man. It, the, the final act <laughs> that's what I'm saying like, like I said I personally don't it doesn't I don't see all these small stuff and it doesn't bother me per se but I remember very bad stuff and so like and then like I said and obviously as we brought up like Mission Impossible and even like MCU you can even see the differences of how some of the movies and even some of the stuff we get to obviously there's a little difference between realism versus you know wizards or you know you know some of the we got a Hulk in there versus uh, other stuff but no it is <laughs> nice seeing like I said running this we talked about it obviously i guess seeing the background's great but no it should be interesting to see what we get um obviously we um guess collider has told us um there are bad things we just we probably need to care or hasn't told us i guess would be a better thing um so it's interesting to see what happens but also tom cruise did a halo jump while people hung from wires Thanks, ILM, for giving us the ability to watch Tom Cruise Halo jump. Um, <laughs> but I think that just like really shows kind of like the range that ILM does, right? They're not just like, right. oh, they do the visual effects for computer or like for animated things. Like they have like a wide range from action to obviously horror, since we mentioned a couple of those, to comic book movies, to TV shows, and they just have such a wide range and they really do have a hand in basically everything that we've seen post-1975 and i just think that's really amazing and i really like how they're pushing technologies um forward to give us just more immerse and make us feel like hey like this is something that's real and it's going to age well for a long time because even some of like their biggest things that we talked about earlier aren't going to age very well like the morphing scene in the willow doesn't age super well but you know the mandalorian stuff is going to age phenomenally because it looks real um, Death you know, becomes her aged so well because yeah. it looks real, and it's a classic. Yes, but that's all I got. Um, ILM's great. Appreciate visual effects. They probably deserve a little bit more credit in other stuff um, and love at the Oscars, but that's a whole another conversation. Yeah, you the don't fact know that, there's all, that there's only one visual effects category in the Oscars is frustrating because visual effects mean so many different things. Correct. Yep. And that doesn't even include like when we go into like stunt work and all the other stuff of like that they thrown out, yeah. which maybe not be necessarily visual effect, but some of that stuff does come in what we're doing. It comes into play, yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like it may not be direct visual effects, but it, it does come into play of what's happening. Um, yeah. Because, like, directing a fight scene is insanely hard, and that's why Americans suck at it most of the time. Accurate. Um, I will say what we can do if we want to go down a dark hole and what we could find through this. Between IML, ILM holding everything and between Disney and everything, we could probably talk about monopolies and talk about how this is probably never going to break up and ruin anything and also lead to the fact that, like, people saying that companies should probably not ever have oversight because we have a cycle of companies essentially going up and then falling down to basically reset the cycle of basically as long as a company is pushing technology forward and being the leading cutting edge of this thing they're never going to actually pull a sears and go back down so they're only going to grow better versus like a sears who basically as people use as the example of biz- big business companies will eventually fall and others will pr- produce ilm is in the front lines of all this stuff going forward so therefore they're probably never going to fall down and get stagnant with what they're doing yeah, and I don't think anyone like really knows how much movies and things that like ILM has done, and right. especially since they're pushing into like TV more, like they're doing yeah. The Boys season two, oh. they've done The Mandalorian, they've done Agent Carter, like they're Which, just doing more stuff. I do have one more question of that stuff. Of um, obviously we didn't talk about this episode, but do they do anything in video games? Because we are seeing more and more mocap, mo- mocap, yeah, mocap. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, I, Sony's obviously like a big production company so i'm sure sony has like their own in-house people to do that i don't yeah i don't know that's a good question because i mean because i mean if anybody saw some of the stuff from the last of us too of how they actually did some of the mocapping and what happened around them it's pretty cool where the voice actor or actress basically just moves like five feet into stuff and then everything around it is all basically basically done for them it's pretty cool to watch obviously that's a little different conversation but anyways Get us out of here. You can probably cut half of this, Jason, because Kate has a meeting and it's probably shit. <laughs> no, I, I think I think it'll be able to fit in. I think it works. Yeah. All right, Kate. Let's let's get us out of here so we can go watch more stuff. <laughs>
Okay. Uh, yeah, but as always, you can find us at But Why Though PC on all of our social medias, and you can find. And if you want to support us a little bit more, head on over to Patreon.com/slash But Why Though PC, and you can find me on Twitter at Omithrandier. Adrian. Yep, you can find me on Twitter at SuperReese93, S-U-P-E-R-R-U-I-Z-93. Matt? Tom Cruise jumped a building and broke his foot and still finished it. What did you do? 